Good morning again, y'all. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Thank you for coming to worship with us here at the fields. We are going to do exactly what Mark just read for us, spend our time this morning in John 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, And I'm looking forward to our time in that passage. Uh, Though I am a little sore uh, and a little tired, I've been at an estate sale, my late grandfather, this weekend up in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and uh, I have learned that there are a lot of things that we can keep in our homes throughout our lives, and there's a lot of things uh, there, Uh, and yet at the same time, there's been a lot of sweet moments of seeing uh, things that remind me of Him, that remind me of sweet memories from my childhood, uh, and most of all from the stories He would share. Uh, anybody who knew, and actually he visited here several times, and you know if you, if you met my, my granddad, my grandpa, uh, that um, you were going to be in it for a long conversation uh, with him. He, he knew so many things, it's sh- such a sharp memory, so many stories. And so it's been, it's been fascinating this week. You know, I'd hear stories like about how he, he met my grandmother at the bowling alley. And it's one thing to hear the story, but then you're going through and you open up the cabinet and you see the 10 bowling trophies. And then you go, okay, you, you know, there's, there's some truth behind this, right? Uh, but he had a sharp memory. Uh, and, and yet being able to find some of those little artifacts, if you will, it kind of, uh, okay, that story really is true. I believed him. He's my, he's my grandpa, you know. Uh, but he would remember things down to the date and the time and everything else. Um, but uh, yeah, so I say that to say, not just to tell you what I was doing this weekend, um, though I guess I could do that. That would otherwise be a little bit random. But in a strange way, that actually connects with what we're talking about this morning. If you've got your Bibles open, look with me right before verse 53. Most of our translations, we use the ESV here at the fields, uh, but NIV, most of your modern translations have a little note here in brackets in a break. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. The bowling trophies that are found in the closet have to be looked at a little bit more carefully when it comes to this passage. And so we've got to figure out, what in the world is this note doing here? What do we do with that as a church? And why are we even talking about it, right? Some of you here this morning are are ready for God's Word to be preached. You have that expectation that is good and right and what's expected of any gathering of true believers that we'd hear God's Word preached. So why are we hesitating at all to dive into this passage? Hope to answer a few questions there. A few of uh, of you also have this understanding that we're preaching uh, the earliest manuscripts only of God's Word, what is most accurately what we believe to be the original canon of Scripture. So why are we preaching this text this morning? I hope to answer some of those questions as well. So I want to spend a few minutes here, uh, and overall, I hope to have a, a shorter, briefer time overall in this text this morning to give ample time to do what Mark prayed so well for us, just to respond to the simple truth of God's Word. But I do want to help explain what does that mean, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811, and what do we do with that, right? We are Bible people. That's true of believers because the Bible teaches us the way of salvation. It proclaims to us who Christ is and what He has done for us, and that we are only saved by grace through faith in Him. So, yes, we are Bible people. It matters that we root ourselves, are grounded in the Word of God. 
Because the Word of man, as you know, it's here or there. It goes up and down through the ages. But the Word of God remains forever, as the prophet Isaiah taught. And so we want to be good and dutiful and worshipful Bible people this morning with this text. Let me give you a few reasons why I am preaching on this text this morning. One, here's just a practical. Uh, we've got one more week where I'm preaching, and then we've got a break with several guest preachers, including our own pastoral resident who led worship this morning, Colton, who's going to lead us through an excellent series on uh, what it means to be a healthy church in various aspects. Uh, and so we're going to take a, an extended break from John. And so rather than start into verse 12, I am the light of the world and the discourse that follows, uh, we have kind of a one-week break that I think is helpful. Uh, two, I could have chosen a different topic or standalone passage and preached on it, uh, but I think even talking about the truth of God's Word, even for a few minutes here at the opening, is so important for us in our day and age. We live in, a, in an information age where information is instantly accessible to us, but as humans, does that make us more trusting as a people? No, that makes us deeply skeptical. I don't think we've ever lived in a more skeptical time as, as humans than the time that we have just an inundated, just floods of information available to us. So we need to be able, as Christians who have rooted our lives on the truth of God's Word, be able to answer, okay, well, why do you trust God's Word? Why is it really? That's the original question in the Garden of Eden, right? Did God really say? What is your answer to that question? We, we need to be able to answer that really well and, and, uh, and helpfully. Um, I was helped by so many different brothers and uh, uh, pastors, theologians. I was able to read. I, I would commend to you an article from a guy named Tim Miller on, the, on TGC, the Gospel Coalition. He does an excellent job. If you are nerdy on this kind of stuff like me and you want to dive into it, I commend to you that article t- from Tim Miller at the Gospel Coalition. But um, there's a couple reasons. Honestly, the, the last and, and really most important reason, uh, three, I, I think that this text gives us a wonderful example of God's mercy. My point for you to write down this morning is going to be very simple in its shortest form. God's true word preaches real mercy. If you don't leave with anything else, I want you to know that God's true word preaches real mercy. Now, like any good preaching pastor here at the fields. I've got a few other things to unpack as a part of that. So you can leave that sentence in its short six-word version, but I, I want you to consider these three phrases that follow from that. How do we know that? Where does it come from? How do we receive it? Well, God's true word preaches real mercy, one from a just father, a truly just and holy living God who is truth and establishes truth, two, through faith in a loving Christ, as we see exemplified in this text. And three, that Christ who commands us to sin no more through His Spirit. This is my central point for this morning. I really believe everything folds back into this truth, whether during these minutes we have talking about God's Word or the rest of the time spent in the text. Church, our statement of faith in of Scriptures, where it begins, says we believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired. Those two things are very important. Written by men. We, we don't believe that it was 
uh, sort of magically or mystically delivered, as other cults or religions might do in a certain way. We believe it was actually written by men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 explains. No prophecy of Scripture of the Bible, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that when we say inspired by God, we believe that God's authorial intent and work and direction was present in the original manuscripts of Scripture. That's why we are even interested in what are the original manuscripts of Scripture. That's how we can stop in a skeptical age and world and say, thus saith the Lord. The Lord spoke this to be true. That's why we hold God's Word in the position that we do here at the fields as infallible, authoritative, sufficient, because thus saith the Lord. God has spoken and yes, even through what these individuals wrote down in that time. That's how we know what is God's Word and, and why it's true. And yet, in the study of trying to get to, okay, what are those manuscripts? What belongs in this book? When we are trying to get at what the apostles, those originally sent by Jesus, really taught we're looking for earliest manuscripts that have the apostolic authority carried from those individuals. You can put that all under the, the big heading of just what belongs in the canon, what's canonical, right? That would be what belongs in Scripture. Now, certainly, what's canonical would also be true because we believe these things really happen. There's a real and living God who sent a real and living Christ to actually die, actually rise from the dead, and send out His apostles to preach that good news to the world. We believe this as historical. There are other historical things that have happened outside of what the Bible has recorded, right? I mean, any of you who took a history class in school know that. You, wrote, you, you read other texts written by other historical figures that taught history. So, I'm going to be talking about, again, when it comes to this text, canonical Thus saith the Lord, scriptural, historical, real, happened. We have evidence, right? Those are the things we have to consider for a moment with this text. Uh, it's an amazing work that goes into us, and, and I, it would be an embarrassment to try to uh, really even condense it all. Um, but to, suffice to say, when we study ancient documents, and I say we, when those who are equipped and qualified to study ancient documents and this guy tries to use the resources available to him to research and read and do due diligence in, in prayer and in wisdom, uh, when others who are quite qualified to study these ancient documents do this kind of work, uh, it is overwhelming that we have so many copies and manuscripts of the text of Scripture. It's, it's really an embarrassment of riches compared to any other historical document, I invite you to do the research if you'd like to look at that more exactly. But suffice to say, we have ample evidence that this is God's Word. In the work of doing that, we have a bunch of copies, manuscripts of the original text, those that were written by men divinely inspired, okay? Those that were written, the original letters, to the New Testament, the original gospel accounts, were passed around to different churches, used to teach the earliest believers who Christ is, 
what this gospel is, what it looks like to live out the gospel in their lives. And so as a result, we don't have any of those original copies still in existence today. They've been lost, destroyed, or just simply not found yet, okay? Now, maybe for some of you, that might be a little concerning. You might think, wait a second, I thought we had these somewhere. Well, again, I want to remind you, we have ample evidence of a ton of different copies, so that analogously, if you take a little rock and you throw it at a stone wall, you can probably more easily find the rock that you threw but struggle to find where it made a dent on that wall. But if you take a bomb and lob it at a concrete wall, you may struggle to find pieces of that bomb, but you will see its impact clearly. That's what we have in the ample evidence of the scriptural manuscripts that we're looking at here. So, again, why are we talking about this with this text? The reason is, just to go back to your footnote in your Bibles, the earliest manuscripts do not include this story. The the manuscripts that are dated the oldest don't have this story in them. And when that happens, our modern translators do honest, godly, biblical work, we believe, by making us aware of that. So that we as a church can then stop and consider, what what do we do with this text? And I want to make it very clear. I'm going to tell you four different positions based on, I said, canonical, historical. I'll show you my cards and show you where I'm at. But I want to be clear, my aim in this is to equip you, is to share these things with you, because ultimately we are able to see throughout the entirety of the New Testament and of Scripture, there's nothing new presented in this text. This is just a story that God's true Word preaches real mercy for the repentant in Christ. That's what we'll see. So, four views. One, it's canonical and historical, written by John. Because the earliest manuscripts don't include this story, that's in suspect for us. We don't have good reason, like we do with the rest of the text of Scripture, to assume and trust that all of it goes back to that author. That's why it's bracketed for us. I would agree. I don't think this passage was written by John. I think it was placed there later on. We see that in the evidence that is set before us. That would be the first viewpoint. Two, it's canonical, but it's not written by John. So, in other words, this is Scripture. This is an inspired text that has been inserted into another text. You would have copyists throughout the centuries who who would write down a gospel, and then they would also record like a psalm, or they would record some of the prophets, or those kind of things. And so there's, there's work to be able to put together, okay, what's the original? Okay, this is John's account of the gospel of Jesus. This is Mark's account. This is those kind of things. You know, they're doing great uh, uh, with so much evidence for us, doing the work to go back and discover, okay, what is the original text here? And again, because the earliest manuscripts don't include this text, I don't think we can assume it was written by John. But from other evidence, suffice to say, I believe this happened, and I believe it's from the apostles. And I I, want to teach it as such this morning. R.C. Sproul would be an example of somebody who I would line up with on that approach. Let me give you two others, and then we'll get out of the weeds and get into the text. The other two are both non-canonical approaches. Non-canonical, not scriptural, not something the apostles taught, but actually happened, still true. That's that's the third perspective here. D.A. Carson, Don Carson, uh, that's a a great theologian and pastor, 
he would be the one who, actually I've used his commentary on John, he would agree with that perspective. It, this is not a thus saith the Lord passage, but it really happened. And then the last would, would be a category that says this is non-canonical, and we don't have enough evidence to say it's historical, but what it teaches is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. John Piper would be the best example I could think of who would agree with that perspective. That, again, this is not thus saith the Lord, not sure that it really happened, but ultimately we can look to the stories of the gospel accounts, we can look to the teaching of the apostles, we can see God's true word preaches real mercy, thus we can do that with this text. And in fact, I, I kind of take, uh, even though I, I believe this is uh, canonical, I, I take John Piper's uh, flow to this. He, he, when he preaches, he spent a lot of time on what I'm talking to you about right now. And I just want to do that well. As your pastor, uh, as talking with Daniel this week, we would just want to do well to stand on the firm foundation of God's Word. So let's do that together and look at this text. Look at the setting and the conflict with me in verse 53 through the first part of verse 6. It says, they each went to his own house, but ate one. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes, the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, uh, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. While teaching in Jerusalem, Jesus was faced with so many tests. We know this throughout the gospel accounts. We've just talked about previously in John the evidence of uh, multiple officers sent to arrest Jesus from the leading religious leaders, uh, Pharisees, the Jews. Uh, they wanted to kill Jesus. This, this, so we know this is a late in Jesus' ministry situation. And th so they've tried to put this test forward to Jesus. This is like a heads I win, tails you lose type of situation. And they're using the example of capital punishment from the law of Moses to try and catch him. Here's what they're doing. If Jesus says stone her, then it'll look like he's committing treason against their government they're living under in Roman authority, right? They'll say this later on in, in John chapter 18, verse 31. They'll, they'll say later on, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, but here they are testing Jesus to do that very thing. So he'll get caught uh, in, in terms of the, the government's eye. But obviously, on the other side, if Jesus says don't stone her, then it'll be apparent, it'll look like he's committing treason against God's own word, just far above the Roman authority or any other authority in any age. Again, we don't live in Rome, but we do live in submission to God's Word, so we feel the tension here. What is Jesus going to do with this test, this situation? And again, it's a tricky one, so we need to stop and break it down together. And again, as I want to encourage you this morning, when there's questions, when we're wondering, let's run here, let's run to the Lord, let's look to His Word. God is not a man that He should lie or change His mind. His Word is consistent, so we can look to it together for the truth. So one, did, did God actually command that people shouldn't commit adultery? That would be step one we want to ask. That's a resounding yes, right? God commanded that adultery is sin. It's breaking God's law. It's the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not be unfaithful to your spouse. That's clear. Two, what about stoning? Did God ever actually command this? 
Did God command his people to kill adulterers? Well, again, when we look at God's law, we have to answer yes. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. This is an example of God's civil law in Moses covered in so many uh, civil law in the books of Moses, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. It covers so many different relational laws between man and woman, between uh, cities and people, uh, between the Levitical priests and the people, all different kinds of things that we see um, in these laws. And so, uh, yes, he commands, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Your mind should flag a, a, a question mark there compared to this story. But we'll keep going. Why does God do this? Does God explain the, the reason for the severity of this punishment? Well, actually, yes, he does. On, on a basic level, when we look at the Old Testament law, but really throughout the Scriptures, when God calls and saves a people, he then instructs them in how they should walk and how they should live. They're called to live distinct. And so actually in that same chapter, in Leviticus 20, where earlier I mentioned verse 10, with the law about adultery. In Leviticus 20, 26, God explains, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. He goes on to explain, Hey, I'm sending you into the promised land to conquer those who have not obeyed God, who are living in detestable ways uh, in, against God. They are uh, abusing others. They are uh, committing heinous acts. They are worshiping in awful ways, and God is sending them out in judgment. And so what he makes clear in that chapter in Leviticus is saying, hey, look, if I'm sending you out to do that very thing that I've called you to do, to, to proclaim and show that judgment, you better be walking in holiness with me. He has harsh civil laws for his people so that they will be distinct and holy and will represent him to the world. That is what God calls them to do. So that's the truth from God's Word in the Law of Moses. But if we look in this story, let's consider the Pharisees' question. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So have they accurately represented God's Word here? No. Where is the man in this situation? Furthermore, time doesn't give me to dive into it, but God's law is clear. If you want to write down Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, a single witness shall not suffice. Where are the witnesses? Where are those? They, they, they're willing to say, well, we caught this woman, and the law says to stone such women. Okay, where are the witnesses who say, I caught, I saw, I was affected? There's nothing of that. All we know is that she's been caught in adultery and she's been brought into the midst in front of Jesus. Friends, we have to stop and consider this in itself is a cruel and heinous thing. The irony is, in God's law, it's very, very clear that there is harsh punishment for malicious witnesses, for those who try to charge others wrongfully 
or in the wrong way. They have neglected part of God's Word and taken part of it out of context and are trying to use it to catch Jesus. And ultimately, guys, what are they doing that for? To kill Him. They have begun with something that was given by God to instruct the people who live by faith to live in a holy way. They have twisted it and used it then to try to kill the one who's been sent by God to save them. This is an awful thing to see. And I think rather than looking distinct from the world, the sad thing is here that they look exactly like the corrupt government that was living around them in this time. They did this very kind of thing, fighting for power, twisting the truth. This is not representative of the character of God. This is not what God has called His people to do. This story, I think, beyond that would have been a shock as we see reflected in the character of Jesus throughout the New Testament, even in John as we've been walking through, the Pharisees, sadly, are using such women, are using those lower in society in their culture to their own advantage to try to test, to try to arrest, and ultimately to try to kill Jesus. But Jesus lovingly and willingly associates with all who would come and repent and believe in Him. Jesus does not use others for His own advantage. Jesus does not try to take a situation and figure out, how can I end up with the most power at the end of this thing? Jesus, as God Himself in the flesh, does not see God's Word as the means by which He will gain power in His society, but the way that He'll walk down in humility to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christian, we should take note here, because we live in a society and in a world where unfortunately the same kinds of things happen. Corrupt leaders, corrupt people, and institutions will take something out of context from God's Word, twist it, and use it for their own power. We must be a people who believe God's true Word. That's why we're spending time in this this morning. We must be a people who, even when God's Word does say difficult and harsh things, we are convinced not by our own reasons, not by our own advantages, not by what will make us seem better in the light of the world or in the light of this group or that group, but by what the Lord says. That, that's what we're called to do. And the, the irony here is that the most difficult thing Jesus could do is exactly what He's going to do. The second half of verse 6. <laughs> I love this. The God of the universe who had every right to call down lightning, hail, fire, whatever, on both the sinner who has made a true uh, sin against the Lord, who has been caught in adultery, we have no reason to believe that's not true on that face value, that level, and those who are using the situation sinfully. The God of the universe is right there before him, uh, before them, before her, ready to enact judgment 
but he stoops down into the dust of the earth. He just pauses for a moment. The text doesn't tell us what he wrote on the ground. I'm not here to speculate. I'm just here to say that Jesus in that moment stopped. And I'm very thankful that in the moment of our own sin, God is patient when we don't deserve it. God, rather than instantly jumping to deserved punishment for real sin, stops in patience and begins to work out his mercy for those who are repentant. Verse 7, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. It's amazing, just as today, the, the, the words of Jesus do work on the hearts of those who are present. We, we see that, right? Verse 8, he just says that. He bends back down and continues to ride on the ground. Verse 9, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. It's, it's amazing. It's as if just in that one sentence, he's saying, almost like he told Nicodemus back in chapter 3, you're the teachers of Israel. Do, do you think you've walked through this situation accurately according to God's Word? That's what he means by, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I don't think we can take license to say that that means that Jesus is saying that only perfect people can establish human justice. That's not consistent with God's Word. But we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, if you're really blameless in this, if you are really so confident in the way that you are carrying this out in this situation, step forward. Move ahead. But Jesus knows that that's the furthest thing from their hearts. Jesus knows that his word is able to convict of sin and do work on human hearts better than anything else he could do. That's the same today. That's why we gather around God's word to do what we alone cannot do. But the sad reality is this brief pain of conviction in their hearts does not lead them to say, you're right, I'm so sorry. This is awful. I'm so wrong. Forgive me. I I need help. They don't do that. They leave. If you're here this morning and God pricks at your heart through anything, through through anything where his word is being preached, whether it's a prayer that's prayed, a song that we sing, a line that you sing there that comes from the truth of God's word, something that that the Spirit, uh, I believe, when the word is preached, is is doing work in the hearts and minds of of hearers beyond what I can do. Um, When the Lord pricks your heart, don't run away from him. Turn to him. Because as we'll see, again, even God's true convicting word is preached so that you might receive his mercy through repentance and faith. Run to Jesus. Christian, when Satan tempts you to despair, 
as we just sang, upward you should look and see him there who made an end to all your sin. We want to sing and say and preach those truths from God's true words that we remind ourselves our hope when we are convicted of sin is not in our strength when we run away and try to work on it on our own. It's in running to Jesus, going to the cross, and then being willing to confess that even with others, knowing that we are all sinners saved by grace. All of us, Christian, church member, we should not be afraid of being caught by Jesus and his word. We should be afraid, like the Pharisees, those who will turn away and perhaps may never again have the opportunity to be convicted of their own sin in that way. Turn to Jesus today. Because I believe, again, however we land on this text in the particulars, this text has resounding truths from the New Testament that what Jesus offers us through faith is real mercy. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Remember, woman, in John's Gospel especially, but in the New Testament, is not a derogatory term, as it might be, have that connotation when you hear it in our ears, modern. Uh, but remember, he, he called his own mother this. He's calling this adulterous woman, woman, term of respect, a term to say simply what he says from here, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. This is shocking, friends. But however much the story, this moment feels shocking, I want you to stop and realize that God's mercy available to you in Jesus is just as shocking, if not more so. We so often try to live out of our own sense of what we would establish as justice. Just think back to this last week. How often were you upset because things didn't unfold, things didn't happen in the way that you think is right and best? When people disappoint you and frustrate you because they didn't accomplish what you hoped they would accomplish. They didn't speak to you in the way that you wanted to be spoken to. That's our standard. But we didn't make the world. We don't sustain the cosmos. We, have, we can't even fathom beyond our own lifetime, much less thousands of years of mankind or human history, billions of people. There is no one with a higher standard of justice and truth than the one true living God. But in Christ, He offers you mercy. He, he takes every worse thing, not just that you've done externally, to others, and certainly not only the things that you've been caught in doing by others, but the things that He alone has seen. He alone has heard from the thoughts of your own mind and heart. And He has sent His Son, as we see in John 3, exemplified in this story, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through that man's death. No one dies here in this story 
But there's a day coming when Jesus will go die on a cross for that woman's sin and for yours and mine, all of us who have repented and believed in Jesus. Friend, you have real mercy in the loving salvation of our God in Christ. That's something worth celebrating. It's something worth uh, reminding ourselves to run to Christ, and it's something worth giving us a perspective on how to interact with those around us in this world, right? It gives us an example to follow. I don't want to stop there because, again, our text this morning doesn't. After he says, neither do I condemn you, Jesus says something very consistent with the entirety of Scripture. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Why does he say that? Well, again, because God, when he calls and saves and redeems and sends out, he does so that they might live in obedience to him. So they might represent him in the world. Christian, he calls you, having saved you by his real mercy, to walk in real obedience. Not in your own strength, but in the, the strength of his Holy Spirit, like we talked about last week, that was given through faith, flowing rivers of living water from out of you. That's what we've been called to do in the same way. I, I, we're not given any more beyond that verse 11. So all I can say is this, Christian, as Jesus teaches throughout the New Testament, you will show your real faith through good fruit. I hope that this woman did just that. From now on, sin no more. Walking not perfectly, but faithfully out of true received mercy. We do make mistakes, Christian. That's why 1 John tells us to confess our sins to a God who is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. But it also says in that passage that we cannot lie and say that we don't have sin within ourselves. We must be repenting of sin once and forevermore through faith in Christ that saves us, but also walking in repentance throughout the entirety of our lives. From now on, sin no more. Paul knows this. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to, sa to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He doesn't beat around the bush. But verse 16, But I received mercy for this reason. He assumes a reason. <laughs> for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Christian, does your life display the perfect patience of God to give you grace and mercy? Do your lips share that Christ has given you mercy through faith in him? Or are you quicker to defend and support your own works and strength and actions? Remember your salvation. Run to the cross Preach mercy, as Jesus commands us, taking the log out of our own eye. Preach mercy to your own heart and life. Identify sin, not in some wrongful, weird setup like this situation, but honestly 
and truthfully before the Lord. Identify sin. Repent and confess and walk in obedience to Him. Hebrews 10, I think, has an interesting passage for us to consider an application here, Christian, on this from now on, sin no more. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and following says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That was the law of Moses. But verse 29, he says now, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? He is not saying that the, that the moment after mercy that you go and sin the next time, that it all ruins it. No, no, no. Jesus Christ died for every sin that you have committed, will commit today, and for as many days as you live when you fall into sin, He has taken all those on His cross and bled and died for them. He has paid the penalty in full. It is finished. To tell us die, it's done. But what the writer of Hebrews is telling us here is that our call to obedience is so important in the life of the believer. It reflects true faith. It does what James talks about in his letter, that it proves that faith without works is dead because true faith produces real, good, lasting fruit in the life of a believer. We need to consider that this morning. But lastly, Christian, in application, we need to consider, as I mentioned earlier, that just as God has shown mercy to you and I through Christ, He has called us to be a merciful people. Luke 6, verse 36, simply, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Compare the Lord's standards of truth and justice and the amount of mercy He, received, uh, he gave to you. And let's consider our own standards and, and maybe for a moment this morning, maybe it's just me, I feel a little convicted that my mercy that I show to others is, a, is quite a bit smaller. But when I live by my own standards, when I try and trust in the strength of my own words or con- sense of control and, and exercise judgment, whether internally or externally to others around me, so many things have been brought to mind in my own uh, mind and heart this week. The Lord's done good work on my own life. I just want to invite you to do the same, to be honest before the Lord this morning. We're almost done with our text. We've got some time to sing a few extra songs and just to worship the Lord for His mercy and to consider our own lives in light of it. Christian, if you've received true mercy from God, if Romans 8.1 is true of you, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, let's consider our lives. And let's do what Christ has called us to do, to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. But if you're here this morning and you have not received mercy through faith in Jesus, I I don't know, maybe you're like this woman who, who knows what she thought being dragged into the situation. She just knew that she was a sinner and she'd been caught. 
she, she probably had no sense of an idea of what even, what would mercy even look like. It, it was just a, a moment of despair. It was, a, it was maybe the worst day in her whole entire life. I have no idea. I just know that when it comes to the loving grace of our Father and, and to the interaction that we see that Jesus has with this woman, God offers real mercy to you no matter what sin you have committed, no matter what sins you have found yourself in. He does not condemn those who come by faith, who repent and believe in Him. So repent of your sin. Don't run away like the Pharisees. Run to Jesus. Find life in Him. But if you're also one who has not put your faith in Jesus, and instead you have thought that by your own good merits, your own morality, you have some sense of power in this world, or in your family, or in this culture. Make no mistake, God alone is just and true. His mercy offered here is not a remittal of His justice to come. He is patient. Take this opportunity this morning to look to Jesus, knowing that Jesus has eyes open, arms open, saying, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that your word preaches real mercy to those of us who have seen Christ clearly, those of us who have heard your word preached clearly. God, we thank you that your word is not something that we have to shy away from in skepticism. But God, when we have hard questions, when we see those difficult footnotes in our Bibles or when we hear those arguments out in our culture and in our world, God, you are true. Your word is true. And God, we know that most of all because of the faith that you've given us. We know that most of all because of your character, your loving kindness, your steadfast love and your mercy and your justice, and your truthfulness. God, there's no other source in this world where we can find that. God, would you help us this morning to remember mercy? Help us as believers to confess sin, not to run away from you as if we ever even could, but to run to you and in confession to walk in further repentance and in sanctification. But God, I also pray if there's a heart in this room, there's a child that's been hearing of the good news of the gospel and their hearts are pricked in conviction, if there's a, a longtime attender or other person here that's just made aware of what real mercy is in Christ today for the first time, God, would you grant faith? Would you do what I can't do? But through just simple faithfulness to share your gospel and this word this morning, would you bring repentance? Would you make the gospel clear? 
And would you continue to show your mercy? Because God, we have nothing else without it. So we thank you for it. We worship you for it. We love you for it. We thank you that even beyond that, you give us your grace and you give us your spirit to walk in the newness of life that you've given us through Christ. Help us to worship you for that even now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.